How do we deal with past injustice? How do we deal with the injustice that's a result of apartheid? We're going to pick up where we left off in the last episode. And in that previous episode, we discussed racial affirmative action. And we also listed a bunch of problems with it. By racial affirmative action, what we mean is a preferential job hiring policy that is based on race. And just to remind ourselves, we are dealing with the following problem. There was prior injustice, and this was a specific kind of injustice, namely job reservation for white people. So you're talking about the injustice that occurred during apartheid South Africa. That's right, exactly. Black people were kept out of the economy to a great extent. And the whole objective of these policies or these positions that we're looking at is to rectify this issue. The question is, what do we do about this particular prior injustice of economic exclusion? So we looked at racialized affirmative action as a solution to that. So the idea is black people were excluded from jobs in the past, and so we give them preferential hiring um, policies today. And if you would like to hear a bit more about racial affirmative action and the problems that go with it, please go and listen to that episode. To understand the material in this particular podcast, we strongly recommend going back and listening to the previous episode. Yeah, we, we're going to be referencing some of the arguments that we raised there. And, and once we looked at racialized affirmative action and we said that there's various problems with it, we then looked at a second account called non-racialized affirmative action. And the idea is that that account is designed still to give people a leg up but not purely based on the basis of race. It's based on a basket of features. And that non-racialized affirmative action account is supposed to solve all the problems that the racialized affirmative action account has. Correct. Okay, Jason, I know there are a couple of issues that you have with non-racial affirmative action. Why don't we delve into those? Okay, so... The argument went that non-racialized affirmative action solves all the problems with racialized affirmative action. So I want to go into a little bit more detail and see how that worked and try and argue that it actually doesn't solve those problems. And it turns out it's not any better than racialized affirmative action. So the objections that apply to racialized affirmative action will also apply to non-racialized affirmative action. Okay, so I'm going to be presenting these objections, and I know that Cecilia has some responses, so we're going to look at those later. But right now, let's, let's, just, let's just dive into the views. Okay, so racialized affirmative action had some problems. These were the issues associated with it. Okay, so firstly, racialized affirmative action, obviously because it's racialized, categorizes races, right? So it assumes that there's white and black people when determining hiring policies. So if you're deciding whether a black person should get the job, you're assuming there are such things as black people, right? There is a category called blackness. And we've done a show on why we don't think there is race, right? And secondly, the problem with racialized affirmative action is this idea that if you give someone the job because they're black, then you can't guarantee that they're a meritorious candidate. In other words, you can't guarantee that they're not inept. If you're not looking at their meritocracy, at their ability to do the job, and you're purely looking at their race when deciding whether they get the job, you don't know whether they'll have aptitude for their job. Okay. Thirdly, the problem with racialized affirmative action is that it undermines the dignity 
of the people who get the job. Why? Because they don't know whether they got the job because of their race or because they're genuinely good at what they do. And lastly, the problem was that racialized affirmative action assumes a very thick conception of groups. In other words, the idea is that because someone who was black in the past was wronged by apartheid, today someone who is black should get a job. It's not necessarily the same person. It could be any black person. So the idea is that that responsibility and that need for justice carries through across black people generally, which is a very, it's a very like uh, dense or thick conception of what a racial group is. Right. Black people for the purposes of racial affirmative action are interchangeable. Yes. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. See, here's the problem. I, I don't think at least on those first three that non-racialized affirmative action does a better job than racialized affirmative action. And here's why. So on the racialized account, what we've got is we, we've got a strong categorization of groups, and those groups are races. So black people deserve jobs more than white people because of past injustice. So on the non-racialized affirmative action account, we don't have the strong conception of groups, but we've got a strong conception of class. So the idea is that people should be given a leg up based on a basket of features where Granted, one of those features will be previous injustice. So if you've suffered previous injustice, that should count towards your ability to get the current job. But there's a bunch of other factors too, and all of them together will contribute to the sense that I deserve this job because I come from a disadvantaged position. So, Cecilia, what are those kind of in the basket? What are the basket of features that we use? So you might look at that particular person's income, the, their parents' income, their education, where it is that they grew up, what kind of school that they went to, what kind of university that they went to. You'll look at various sort of socioeconomic indicators. Including that if you've suffered injustice in the past exactly. or racism in the past, that will count. Absolutely. So if you come from a disadvantaged position based on that basket of, of factors, then you should be considered preferentially for a job position. So the problem is it sounds like that basket of features really substitutes for one term, which is lower class. So if you're in a lower class, you should be given preferential treatment when hiring for a position if you're competing against someone who's middle or upper class. And it sounds to me like the problem with the position is that you've replaced the idea of race with the idea of class. So there's still grouping going on here, and there's still rewarding of people within groups for what happens to other people within the group. It's just that it's not within a race, it's within a class. That objection really is what's called an internal coherence objection. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, I agree that there was injustice in the past. I agree that your your project is a good project. It's just that I don't think your project succeeds any better than the racialized affirmative action account. So second problem is, according to your view, the non-racialized affirmative action view, it solves this problem of ineptitude. So the idea is you're hiring someone not based purely on their race anymore. You're hiring someone based on a basket of qualities, and that basket of qualities is linked with their class. And the idea is that if they've succeeded in life despite their prior disadvantage, they're going to be very good at persevering. They're going to have a grit or a determination when they do their work. And the idea is that that's going to help them better perform their job. 
So it, it does solve this problem of ineptitude because the idea is that people who are hired based on their class will be better at doing their job than someone who's gotten there without having to work really hard for it. Right. So grit would count towards one's idea of aptitude or ability to do a particular job. Right, right. So it it sounds good. The problem is if we look at it more carefully, I can think of lots of cases where grit or perseverance is not linked with aptitude or ability or merit. Okay, so we can think of cases where grit is not necessary for success in a job and where grit is not sufficient for success in a job. It may help some of the time, but at least in a lot of cases, it, it won't be related at all. So I'll give you some cases where it's neither necessary nor sufficient. So here's a case where it's not necessary. You need a case where you've got uh, success, but you don't success in a job or ability in a job, but you don't have that perseverance or that effort. And we can imagine that. We can imagine someone who's really good at doing their job and just effortlessly sails through it, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever felt that way in any job I've done. <laughs> But I can imagine there are certain people who just sail through their jobs. You know, they're just like they, they arrive at work in the morning and everything's organized and, and they just sail through the day and they leave at exactly 4.30 or 5 or when is it that people leave work. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, everything's cool and they don't have to work hard. So it seems like perseverance is not necessary for success. Okay. We can also imagine cases where perseverance is not sufficient for success at a job. So those would be cases where someone tries really hard, but they don't succeed. And we can imagine those too, right? So we can imagine this poor guy coming to work every morning and trying incredibly hard, but he's just not suited. So an example is if someone were to employ me as a rocket scientist, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, my math is not terrible, but I, I think you could do it. I don't know. See, I, I think it'd be a steep learning curve and, uh, and my, yeah. That's why you'd need some grit to help you out. I'd need some out. grit, yeah, yeah. But we can imagine that like rocket scientists, rocket science might be so tough. I'll give you an example. I cannot draw. Yeah, me neither. This is, I can't draw. I, I mean, stick men are tough. Okay. <laughs> so if you were to employ me as a fine artist or like a graphic designer, it would be a total disaster. I could try incredibly hard and never succeed. I feel you. That so, would be the same for me. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it might help, but, but my ability just might be absent in that job. Yeah. Okay. So, so the point is that just because someone comes from a disadvantaged background and they worked very hard and might work very hard in this job doesn't guarantee success. Okay. So, so far I've given an internal coherence objection to non-racialized affirmative action. The idea that it doesn't do any better than racialized affirmative action at solving injustices of the past. And there's a third reason why non-racialized affirmative action might not be better than racialized affirmative action. Or there's a third problem that I don't think it solves any better. And that's the problem of dignity. So the idea is if you get a job because of your race, you're always going to wonder whether you got that job because of your race or because you're good at your job. And the people around you in your job might wonder that too. And your boss. And there's this problem that your dignity is undermined. Now, the, the non-racialized affirmative action view is supposed to solve this problem because what it does is it says we're not hiring you based on your race. We're hiring you based on a basket of features which translates to your class. Now, really, I think the problem is that it sounds like you're hiring someone as a case of charity. So we're saying – I'm hiring you because you come from a disadvantaged background. And that sounds like I've given you this job as a charitable gift. 
And I think that's quite humiliating for people as well. And again, they might doubt their ability to do their job. So I think the person's dignity is still undermined if they're hired based on a non-racialized affirmative action account. Okay, so I want to go through what to me is a kind of a, a, a more damning internal coherence objection. So the idea is that suppose a non-racialized affirmative action account lands up giving all the right people jobs. Okay, so suppose it uplifts the economy in such a way that black people are all given the positions that they deserve and we we create a more equitable society and everything goes well. The racialized affirmative action proponent might turn around and say you've done it for the wrong reason. So the idea is we're trying to solve a, a past or prior injustice and that injustice is a racialized injustice. So black people were treated abominably because of their skin color and because of their race. And now what we're trying to do is solve that problem, not based on their race, but based on their prior disadvantage. And we're not actually referencing their race when we decide whether someone gets a leg up or not. So the problem is you might do all the right things for the wrong reason. You might give people the job, even though it's not for the reason they want the job. Okay, so I want to look, because we've looked at two internal coherence objections, I want to look at one further objection, and that's an external coherence objection. So an external coherence objection basically says, I disagree with your project as a whole. Okay, it's, it's, it's not that I agree with your project and your execution is wrong. I disagree with the project as a whole. And this is actually the reason why I'm not a proponent of the non-racialized affirmative action account. So the idea is that any affirmative action, racialized or non-racialized, is going to be egalitarian. And the idea behind egalitarianism is that everyone is fundamentally equal in some way. Okay, so they have some fundamental equality or value or worth that's shared by everyone, and so everyone should be treated equally in some way and given the same stuff. Now, what we mean by stuff, it's a very vague term, and it's meant to be vague because there's different kinds of egalitarianism. So some egalitarians, like affirmative action accounts, think that the stuff you should give people equally is an equal opportunity. So non-racialized affirmative action says that we should give everyone the same opportunity to get a job and they shouldn't be biased based on their prior background or their prior disadvantage. Give everyone the same opportunity to succeed. Then it's up to them whether they actually do succeed, but give them the same opportunity. Why? Because everyone fundamentally has the same worth. So I have two problems with this. The first is I'm not sure everyone does have the same worth. So I'm not sure everyone is fundamentally equal. And this is not across race. This is across any two people, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender. People seem very different. So different people contribute to society in different ways. Some people contribute more than others. Some people create a mess in life. Some people create a big mess, like they're murderers or axe murderers or serial killers. Other people create little messes, like my neighbor who plays incredibly loud music. And as Cecilia knows, I'm a night owl and I try to get to bed <laughs> early in the morning and he's got his music music blaring at, at three o'clock when I'm trying to get to sleep. My neighbor seems to have less value than some other people in the world who cure cancer, for example. Not everyone has equal value. And so it's, it's difficult for me to understand why everyone should be given the same stuff or treated equally. So that's the first problem with egalitarianism. So the second problem is which stuff should we give them equally? So let's assume for a moment that everyone is equal. What should we give them? So one answer is we should give them equal opportunities, which is 
the non-racialized affirmative action idea. But why stop there? Why not give them equal stuff more generally? Why not give them equal resources? And we call this equality of outcome, not just equality of opportunity. So you don't just give them an equal opportunity to get the job. You give them equal pay that the job would have given. And this leads down to a very difficult path of um, socialism or communism. So the idea is everyone gets the same stuff and that stuff is everything. So so it's it's everything from uh, possessions to money uh, to land to everyone gets the same stuff. And that's where things go a bit cockeyed. And uh, Marxism and uh, socialism has a horrific history. And I'm not sure that non-racialized affirmative action can distance itself from that type of Marxism or socialism, and that's a problem. Okay, so I've given all these problems that I I have with non-racialized affirmative action. I want to give an alternative. So I want to give a view that I think is better than the affirmative action views, racialized or non-racialized. And then Cecilia is going to try and rip my view apart. (laughs) Going to try. Going to succeed. (laughs) Yeah, she is going to rip my view apart. Okay, so so I mean, this is the thing about philosophy is that it's it's very hard to come up with a positive view. It's it's very easy to object, Mm, easy to criticize, but very hard to come up with a view that can weather objections. Okay, Jason, let's hear about this magical unicorn account that you have that will be so much better than what's uh, generally put out there. Yeah. And and just before I do that, I just want to say that I think that the non-racialized affirmative action account is a very ambitious account. If it works, it's amazing because what it does is it's supposed to solve prior injustice while at the same time not committing itself to the problems of their existing races and also tries to set up a society that going forward is the best possible society. So if it works, it's an amazing account. It just might be trying too hard. It might be trying to do too many things. But I commend you and I commend your fellow (laughs) author, Mark Oppenheimer. The two of you have written together on non-racialized affirmative action. And uh, yeah, I, I commend the view. And I just don't think you've gone far enough in your individualism. And I'm going to explain why I say that in a moment. Right. Let's hear why we haven't gone far enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, so my view is this, I have what, what I call an individualist account. And the idea is that instead of looking at people suffering injustice as members of a group, you look at them as suffering injustice as an individual. And instead of saying that groups committed the injustice, in other words, that groups did the wrong, we say that individuals did the wrong. And the problem with both affirmative action accounts is that they presume that groups are the ones suffering wrongs and groups are the ones doing wrongs. So in the racialized affirmative action account, it's that white people have done bad things to black people in the past, and so black people are owed certain things, namely job opportunities. And in the non-racialized affirmative action account, the idea is that certain classes of people, lower classes of people, have suffered at the hands of middle and upper classes of people. And so those middle and upper classes of people owe lower classes of people certain things today, namely affirmative action, preferential job hiring. Okay. So on my position, I don't look at classes of people or races of people at all. I look at individuals and I say, this individual has suffered. And so this individual might need a leg up. And this individual has been done a wrong, and so this individual is entitled to compensation. And when looking at who owes that individual compensation, it's the person who performed the wrong, not a group of people. Okay, so I'll give you an example. 
Suppose two people apply for a job. So one person is black and one person is white, and the black person has had a difficult life and has suffered prior injustice. And the white person has lived, let's say, an easier life, what some people might call a life of privilege. So let's say those two people apply for a job, and, and, and you've got to decide who gets the job. Now, let's say those two people are equally meritorious. They're both equally good at, at the work, and now you've got to decide who gets the job. So on a racialized affirmative action account, you give the black person the job. On a non-racialized affirmative action, you would also give a, the black person the job because they come from a more difficult set of circumstances. On my account, you don't award the job to the black person purely because of those two reasons. You would look at what is good for society as a whole. So if the two people are perfectly equal at their jobs, you'd probably say that they'd be equally good at giving society a benefit. So, so you kind of have to flip a coin. But if there was a slight difference in ability, then you would have to give the, the job to the person who would bring the most um, utility or happiness to society as a whole. So I'm relying on an idea called utilitarianism, which is the idea that an action's right um, just in case it maximizes utility or maximizes happiness for society as a whole. And I'm saying that when you decide who to give the job to and when you decide on issues of justice generally, you look at utilitarian principles. In other words, when you're looking at resolving past injustice, it becomes a moral issue because utilitarianism is a form of morality. It's not a political issue which relies on the state having policies which determine how employers are deciding who gets jobs or not. Okay, Jason, so can you perhaps sum up the advantages of the individualist account over the other two that we've been through? I think that there's three advantages over the other accounts, over the, the two forms of affirmative action. So firstly, I don't categorize on race or class. So it's a purely individualist account. And so we, we don't have these problems of racial categorization or class categorization. Secondly, my account solves the ineptitude problem. So it's this problem of, are you hiring the best person for the job? Well, yes, because the best person for the job will produce the most utility for society as a whole. They'll do their job best, which means that the company that they're working for will be the most effective and contribute to the economy the best. And so the best person will be hired for the job. Uh, the third problem that it solves is that it doesn't undermine the person's dignity. So when they get the job and they know they've gotten the job because they'll be producing the most utility for the company and for society as a whole, then, by the way, utility just stands in here for um, sort of effectiveness or happiness uh, or well-being. So if they're producing the most effectiveness for the company as a whole, then they're going to feel great about themselves and they're not going to feel like their dignity has been undermined. Okay, well, that account sounds wonderful on the face of it. <laughs> Sarcasm dripping, dripping. A little bit, yeah, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> and I guess now it's my turn to look at the objections to the individualist account, and I'll examine various ones. Firstly, I'm going to be dealing with well, the points that you suggest make your account much better than a racial affirmative account. Okay. So firstly, you say that the fact that you don't have racial or class categorization is an advantage. 
I think the fact that there is no categorization is actually a disadvantage, not because there is a lack of racial categorization, which I think we both agree is just incorrect and arbitrary and just does not serve a proper purpose. But the point is that if you don't categorize people at all, you can't resolve group issues. So say, for example, a group of people were maltreated. You are not going to be able to pick out the fact that there is a systemic injustice that occurs. And you can't pick out the fact that there is a magnitude to this injustice at a particular scale on which the injustice took place. So the thing is, I mean, I, I certainly don't believe in categorizing people according to arbitrary features such as race or gender or sexual orientation or any of that kind of thing. But what you want to do and what's done all the time in daily life is categorize people some way as types of people. So the law does that as well. Similar cases are treated alike. So you look at an individual circumstances and individuals who are in similar circumstances will receive the same kind of consideration before the law. And the same can be said for tax. We tax people according to different scales. Those who earn less are taxed less and those who earn more are taxed a bit more. This is generally a sliding scale of how we treat people differently. It's similar to the objection I have to non-racialized affirmative action. So I'm saying that non-racialized affirmative action isn't better than racialized because it doesn't solve the problem for the right reason. So if it does give everyone the jobs that we want to give jobs to, and it gives them based on a basket of features instead of their race, it's doing it for the wrong reason. Here, what you're saying is that if my account gives, even if it gives the right people the job, it's doing so based on the wrong reason. It's based on their individual individualism and their individualness. But the injustice that we're trying to resolve is a prior injustice that occurred to a group. And so the idea is that you can't solve group problems with an individualistic solution. Whereas you're right that individuals were harmed, you can talk about groups of individuals that were harmed. You know, you can talk about groups who were persecuted or harmed in similar ways. And it just makes it easier. It's sort of a shorthand. People who suffered X, Y, and Z injustice will now receive X, Y, and Z compensation. Yeah, so there's a matching. There's a like for like, and on my account, there's not. That's right. So on, a, on an affirmative action account, you've got a certain kind of injustice occurring and a similar kind of solution. And on my account, you've got a certain kind of injustice occurring and a completely different solution. Okay, moving on to another thing that you claim is better with your account than with the other two accounts, which is the ineptitude issue. So you suggest that the individualist account solves the ineptitude problem. And we may well agree that it does, right? The problem is it does so at a very high cost. So... If you're constantly going to be giving those individuals the jobs who perform best at the task, what you're not going to be doing is allowing people who have had potentially a difficult background or come from very poor circumstances to improve their lot in life. What seems to happen then is that there's no ability to uplift or give a leg up to those um, who may need such assistance in order to first get into the job market or get into the economy. So it's, it's what's called or what's known as the accrual problem. So benefits will keep accruing over and over to those which your account might favor, whereas, you know, we are not going to be uplifting the poorest of the poor or those who actually need some upliftment. Okay, so now I want to get to your point around using utilitarian principles. 
basically the idea there is that you want to do whatever is best for society, right? What does one do, though, when what seems to be best for society seems to be morally wrong? So one could imagine that, let's say, a black man is the best candidate for a particular job. I mean, he is just on so many, on all the measures, just the best person for the job, right? But what happens if that black man happens to be in a very racist society? So you can imagine a society that would be hugely upset were you to give this black man a job. And they would be greatly distressed by the fact that this black man would receive the job. On the utilitarian view... You should not give the black person the job because it would be bad for society. It would cause such upset. And so that just seems a bit wrong. Firstly, it seems wrong because he's obviously the right guy for the job. Secondly, it would seem to hugely undermine his dignity. So the idea is that my utilitarian principles are giving the wrong answer. Right. In certain, in certain cases. And I, I mean, it's a great objection. And there's a, there's a nice parallel case in The Handmaid's Tale. If, if our, if our listeners have watched The Handmaid's Tale, it's fantastic. And uh, it's fantastic because it's dystopian. So it really, it tries to alter societies in small ways. And, and the results are bizarre and horrific. So in season two of The Handmaid's Tale, what, what's happened is that, uh, I'm not going to ruin The Handmaid's Tale, but the, <laughs> In the you better not because I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, no, you must watch it, Cecilia. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, so basically the premise of The Handmaid's Tale is that women are dispossessed. So all of their possessions, all of their assets, all of their rights are removed, and only men have these rights and possessions. So women become purely uh, pawns uh, played by men, and uh, the whole the, the reason for this is that women are not reproducing in the society anymore. And that's not because they don't want to. It's because It's because women are suddenly infertile. So uh, what happens is that um, the whole society gears around uh, making sure that women reproduce. And one day this, this, this woman falls pregnant and there's jubilation and uh, everyone's very excited. But then she gets, she gets ill and uh, the baby's in distress and it looks like she's going to lose this baby. And there's only one person who can save her and that's a, a female obstetrician. And she has since lost her job and she's since been dispossessed of everything. And women are not allowed to work in the society. And the only way to save this child is for them under the cover of night to bring in this, this, this woman, this female obstetrician to try and help this child. And, uh, it's, it's a parallel case because if society as a whole were to learn about this, mm. they would be horrified mm. because women are not allowed to work, not as doctors, <laughs> not with that level of power. And so uh, in that society, it, it would be, according to the utilitarian, wrong to bring in the obstetrician because it would cause general unhappiness. Right. That's a really good parallel case. And uh, I will definitely have to watch The Handmaid's Tale, that's for sure. OK, I'm going to move on to another issue that one might have with an individualist account. And that is that it seems to rely on the goodness of people. The question is, how would you implement your your system? It just can't be turned into a policy the way, for example, non-racial affirmative action can. Of course, the way that a policy is then constructed is very important. So whether you take a carrot approach or a stick approach to non-racial affirmative action is going to play a big role. So these details matter, whether you are going to, you know, potentially punish those who don't comply with the policy with prison or sentences or huge fines or that kind of thing, or whether you are going to provide more of a carrot approach by saying that you'll get certain tax deductions will, you know, also determine just 
how implementable and how reasonable a policy such as non-racial affirmative action can work in practice. But the point is, just your individualist approach means that there is no way of making sure people actually do treat people the way they ought to, namely morally. And that seems to be a great issue. Yeah, so both the carrot and the stick approaches are group approaches because the state is implementing the carrot or the stick. Correct. And the state is a group. So in my case, there's no state operating here, or at least not in the way I've outlined the account so far. They're purely individuals involved. And so there's, there's, there's no one who can implement policies, whether they be um, incentive-based or punishment-based. Right. There's no way we can make sure or encourage people to act morally. Because policies, of course, don't apply to individuals. I mean, they do, but policies, you know, when government writes a policy, they don't say Joe, Joe Smith from uh, number 12 uh, Harriet Street um, needs to do X. Obviously, they can't do that. So what they do is they say people like this kind of this type of person have to do X. And that just so happens that it applies to Joe Smith. As soon as you, you're looking at policies, you're looking at types of people or groups of people as opposed to individuals. And on my account, you're only looking at individuals so you can't have policies. Exactly. Now, let me get to the last objection I'll levy against the account, which is the following. Okay, if we look at racial affirmative action, it is purely backward looking. If we look at non-racial affirmative action, it's forward and backward looking. And the individualist position seems to be entirely forward-looking. So in what way do you think racialized affirmative action is backward-looking? Right. So the reason for the existence of racial affirmative action is to right wrongs that were committed in the past, and particularly racial injustice. So it just wants to look at what happened in the past, what can we do now about it? And so it looks at the fact that black people as a group were maltreated and experienced much hardship and injustice. Therefore, black people right now need to be treated in a better way to remedy the wrongs that occurred in the past. Whereas with non-racialized affirmative action, it's both back and forward. Correct. So that's what we discussed in the last episode, is the fact that we would certainly be picking out individuals who would benefit from the policy to whom injustice was done in the past, but it would also look at individual circumstances currently. So you'd be uplifting people who are currently disadvantaged, not necessarily because that's linked to any previous disadvantage, but simply because of where they find themselves in life now. And that's supposed to create the best society going forward. Correct. Okay, so your position is interesting because it seems to be entirely forward-looking. So it just can't solve justice issues because justice is in nature a political thing, right? So you're dealing with morality, but you're not dealing with justice. And when you say political and justice, you're talking about at least somewhat backward-looking. Yes, it's backward-looking. and So in order to account for justice, we've got to look at the past. Correct, correct. And my position only looks forward. Correct. Right. And here again, the point is one that I've made previously, which is that it can't solve big systemic justice issues. It just, it looks at individual to individual issues. It's a pretty big bullet that one has to bite because you can't recognize classes of people or categories of people or whatever types of people who were poorly treated in the past. And and when you say systemic issues, philosophers who look at systemic issues and sociologists and politicians who look at systemic issues always look at the past. 
So, so when you look at um, postmodernism, or if you if you look at Marxist theory or social justice theory, it it all looks at uh, past injustice and how that's carried through today. And my view is not doing that. It's purely looking at what is what is the best thing to do right now as an individual with another individual. And the idea is to do the best thing that will that will result in the best future, the best consequences. And so I'm ignoring the past, and so I can't I can't take into account, as you say, systemic issues. Right, and the, the point is, you can't take into account issues or situations such as the following. So people who were excluded from the job market, not because they tried to get a job and a particular person turned them away, but because there was a policy in place which said to them, don't even bother, don't even bother going out there and trying to find a job because you will be turned down because you're the wrong race. Your account can't look at the wrongdoer there really because there doesn't seem to be a particular person who's the wrongdoer there. There's just a policy which is stopping or hindering people from even attempting to get into the economy and that becomes problematic for for your position. So the policy is the problem, the system is the problem, not a particular individual or particular agent and my position, my individualist position purely looks at individuals, not at policies or systems and so it can't take into account these kinds of injustice and it can't fix them. Right. And you may also think about how certain policies are implemented. You know, various people are involved in them. It may well be the police that take you out from your job that you are holding illegally, you know, under apartheid law. But can you really just blame that particular policeman who's now schlepping you out of your office? Or, you know, who's to blame there? Is it the policymaker? Which policymaker? At what level do you lay blame? And where does the compensation need to come from? We hope you enjoyed this discussion on racialized and non-racialized affirmative action and my alternative account. We've offered lots of objections to each other's accounts, and um, I think I can speak on behalf of Cecilia and myself that we have lots of responses that we'd love to give. Uh Uh-huh, we're dying to give responses. (laughs) And when we tried to do this, it just took forever, so we cut all of that out of this episode for your sanity and ours. Um, But we disagree on these issues, and they're highly complex and highly difficult to understand fully and come to a conclusion. So um, really, the point that we're trying to take away from this episode is that there is no clear right answer to this. So when politicians or business people have a very clear solution to the problem of injustice and affirmative action, they're obviously not looking at the full complexity of the issues. Many thanks to our sanity checker, Mark Oppenheimer, for his invaluable input around the content of this episode. This is cliffcentral.com.